Ushers are coming forward with Bibles. You'll need a Bible this morning. We'll be in the Word of the Lord. And there's some note sheets as well. There's not many. We've had some technical difficulties this morning. The printer just died on me when I was printing the note sheets. So doing um, things a little bit different. I'm going to be actually trying to use my computer. Uh, Tatiana did print out for me a copy of the manuscript, but it's kind of all skewed, and I didn't know if that would make me lose my train of thought, but this might make me lose my train of thought too because I've never done this before. I feel like I might need a, um, like a table instead of a podium or something like that, how those you know, trendy churches do it, I guess. But we're going to try to make it work like here with this way and um, pray that, it'll still, that it won't mess up. We've had a lot of technical difficulties. Actually, that reminds me, I should probably take my watch off now even <laughs> so Siri doesn't interrupt us again. I mean, I realize that might sound ominous to you. I'm taking my watch off. That doesn't mean I'm not watching the time, but uh, we, probably will go, we probably will go long this morning. You know, I don't want to disappoint y'all or anything. So, <laughs> so let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's where we'll be primarily this morning. Now, brothers and sisters, we will have to address sin this morning. Hopefully that's a welcome topic in your life. It's not, a, it's not a foreign topic to us here at First Family Church by any means, and that's good. I once heard a pastor explain that if you don't talk about sin much in your church, then you can expect the Holy Spirit not to be active much in your church because one of the roles, one of the activities of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. No, no shining the light on sin, in other words, no working of the Spirit. But of course, there is forgiveness of sin, and we are a church that wants to keep the law and gospel distinction firm in our thoughts, firm in our hearts. And so we also need to remember that the Holy Spirit also reveals and conforms us to Christ. Sin never has the last word in our lives, church. Sin doesn't have the last word in our Bibles. You can look at Revelation 22 later if you like. And sin should never have the last word with the new covenant people, with the church. We are a people built upon and trusting in the promises of God, built upon the grace found in our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel of God. And so in a way, we really have our work cut out for us this morning. Uh, Just two verses are primarily going to be before us, but these two verses, which are really like they're they're the two sides of, of one coin, they are the apostle's application for all that he has written since chapter 8, verse 1. And because of that, I want to start reading just a little bit before our passage this morning. So if you're at chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, let me get there as well. We're going to start a little bit before chapter 10, just so that we can get the context. And so we'll read our passage, and then after the reading of the Word of the Lord, we'll pray. So the reading of the Word of the Lord, beginning at chapter 9, verse 24, says this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers." that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape so that you may also be able to endure it. Well, that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we depend upon you uh, to give us understanding this morning. Holy Spirit, that you might use the word to instruct us and guide us, that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear, that we might understand what your will is in our lives. Please be glorified among us and help us to look to you and to see you in spirit and truth, to see you as, have, as you have revealed yourself to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I was thinking about verse, verse 12 and 13 this week, one of the things that came to mind for me were, were rip currents of all things. And most of you probably know what a rip current is, but I'll explain it just in case because my family and I, we like to take a lot of beach trips because you know, it doesn't cost a whole lot of money and it gets hot in the Bay Area, right? I mean, that goes without saying after this past week, I think. And the beach is a nice place to go, except for the fact that we have all of these little kids who love the water but aren't great swimmers. They're not very accomplished swimmers. And so a rip current is a pretty dangerous spot for us to be in, so we just try to avoid them. But a rip current is basically a spot where, where two waves, where, where waves come in, maybe slightly different angles, and, and you have these two sections of waves, and right in between them, there's a, a path of water that leads back out to the ocean. It kind of looks weird, actually, if you've seen it, because you, you might be inclined to think that, oh, this is a good place to swim because there's not a lot of waves right there, but that section right in the middle where the waves are coming in is a stream almost that's pushing back out into the deep part of the ocean. And if you get caught in it, you get sucked out pretty far, pretty fast. Over 80% of the rescues on the beach happen where rip currents exist. But often, because many uh, lifeguard hours are used up there and because many people have died in, in such places, uh, beaches will have a sign either on the beach, kind of near where the rip current is, or maybe right at the end of the path that leads up to the beach that explains, you know, danger, look out for rip currents, or like danger, no lifeguard on, on duty, strong rip currents, something like that. And you got to read those warning signs because warning signs serve a distinct purpose. When you go to the beach, when you go hiking, when you, when you see that sign on, on, on a curvy road and the truck is kind of tiltering, you know the type of sign I'm talking about, that one, you need to pay close attention to those signs because they're there to help prevent calamity that has already taken place there. And only a really, really proud person would just ignore all those types of warning signs. Now, 
I could probably afford to slow down a little bit on curvy roads myself. I'm sure I'm the only person that needs to admit that. But these signs exist, well, they often exist to prevent death, uh, to prevent great bodily injury. And it's only really, really proud people who are overconfident, people who think that they have more than enough skill. It's those sorts of people that end up avoiding those kinds of signs. It's pride. It's the height of arrogance in some way. Well, in a sense, that, that really describes the Corinthian church. A proud and arrogant, self-confident, but not self-controlled people. They need a threat. They need a warning. They need a warning sign. And Paul is here now, in our text for this morning, he's giving them that warning. Now, just by way of reminder, the context, okay, there is a context for these verses. It's not to say that 12 and 13 can't stand on their own. I think they can, because remember, the apostle, his, this is his application for all these different kinds of sins that Israel was guilty of. And if we're thinking of a, of a kind of sin, well, there are all different ways or kinds of sin that aren't exactly the same, but the application against them can be the same. And th that's an example like with what we have here. But we need to make sure that we also get the context so that we are not missing the point of the text. So at the end of chapter 9, the apostle appeals to a metaphor in which he elaborates on the Christian's need for self-control, in which he expounds upon the sort of choices and sacrifices and decisions that a spirit-filled person will ultimately make. Now, it's not that we exhibit self-control in order to be saved, right? That's putting the cart before the horse. We don't exhibit self-control to be saved, but we have self-control because we have been born again, and we understand what is awaiting us because of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. An imperishable crown is what the Apostle Paul says there. In other words, our glorification and our spending of all eternity in a loving fellowship with and in worship of God. But then in chapter 10, kind of changes paces a little bit. The apostle appeals to historical events that took place in the context of the Old Covenant. A covenant that the church is no longer in, but the events that happened to Israel during this time, uh, verse 11 tells us, and verse 6 as well, tell us that they can and do serve as an example and instruction for the new covenant people of God that live and exist within, live and exist within the context of a local church. So like a, a fellowship like ours, and a fellowship like the Corinthian church. And so let me make a clarifying point or, or two here as well. And this is, this is really important, actually, for understanding verse 12 to 13. Something that I actually hope will help you to understand the scope and the breadth of Scripture when you read it on your own time, especially the Old Testament. But let me say it like this, the first part here, is that Israel is not the church. Let me say that again. Israel is not the church. If you have an outline, I, I put a little summary of this on the outline, but probably not everybody got one. But that doesn't mean that Israel is totally distinct from the church either. And there's a lot of room for error or confusion on this topic. The dispensationalist, he draws, he or she draws a super hard distinction between Israel and the church. And in some cases, even speaking of two different peoples of God with, the, with even two different plans of salvation, that is absolutely an error and very dangerous leading to all kinds of cultural and doctrinal issues. For example, um, maybe a modern one, you know, the, the modern state of Israel, though an ally to the United States of America, they're not an ally of the church. They are a mission field for the church. The citizens who live there that don't belong to Christ, they, they reject Christ. 
and those ones who reject Christ, but they read the law and the prophets, they need the gospel. That is, Israel is not the church. But then on the other end, our Presbyterian and Reformed congregational friends, they make the mistake of not seeing enough distinction, claiming that Israel actually is the church under, under different administrations of what, they call, of, what the, of what is called the covenant of grace. It's a less dangerous error to be sure, but an error nonetheless. And so because Israel circumcised their babies, Presbyterians, Reformed congregations, they baptize their babies who don't yet profess faith, and they have a less autonomous church polity or church government, in other words. And they miss that there is a distinction, and that has doctrinal ramifications. And the, this distinction that we should observe and recognize is this, is that Israel is a type of the church. It's not the church itself. It's not absolutely distinct from the church, but it is a type of the church. And there are all kinds and manners of types and shadows in the Old Testament that point to the anti-type or the reality in the New Testament. Uh, Pastor Nick spoke about many of them because they were just given to us in our text in 1 Corinthians 10 just last week. But that's just a small fraction of them. The Old Testament is absolutely saturated and filled with these types and shadows that point to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ. And it's a joy when you see this even because our Lord and his work is on every page of scripture and it just comes alive for you at that point when you're reading it. But Israel itself even is a type of the church. And again, this will help you to understand verse 12 and 13 properly. I'll give you a couple examples. The nation of Israel was consecrated by the blood of bulls and lambs. The church is not consecrated by the blood of bulls and lambs. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Just a few chapters over. A few books over, I should say. From 1 Corinthians. Hebrews chapter 9. This is verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So he's setting up, the author to the letter to the Hebrews is setting up the type. The, the first covenant, this one that points to another one. It had regulations, it had these, these things that needed to be observed, observed, and then you read through, keep reading through it, names these types of things, that these elements in the old covenant community that many of them, again, are types and shadows, like the golden uh, altar and, and the, the holy place. But then in verse 6, notice what it says. And you have to remember a little bit from Leviticus chapter 11 at this point as well. Leviticus 11 talks about the priests consecrating the people through the blood of bulls and goats. But look at verse 6. It says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties. Verse 7, But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for unintentional sins of his people. What was that? day called where the high priest went in? The day of, a, of atonement, right? So it, the priests in Israel, they were consecrating the nation through the sacrifice of, of bulls and lambs. These things are a type and shadow. They are pointing forward to an, to an anti-type or a reality that is true in the new covenant. And that is this. It's that the church is consecrated by the blood of Christ. Not by the blood of bulls and goats, bulls and lambs, but by the blood of Christ. And so look down to verse 11. 
We'll read to verse 15. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So you see, Christ is greater. He's the antitype of the type. He's the reality of what the shadow was pointing to. The priest in the Old Covenant served as a type of the priest's the priestly office of Jesus himself, and the sanctification that the blood and of the bulls and goats provided were a type of the greater and perfect sanctification that Christ Jesus would make for his saints, for his elect, those chosen in him from before the foundation of the world. And that's actually my next point, actually. Israel is, is just a type of the church, not exactly the church, not distinct from the church, but a type. This next example says, The nation of Israel was chosen in Abraham. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 7, please. So the fifth book in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7. You see Joshua, you're very close. You see Numbers, you're very close. Let's go forward. Deuteronomy means like the second telling of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We'll read verse 6 and 8. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So who are the fathers that they were chosen in? Abraham, right? Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. And think back to Genesis 12, right? Abraham was a pagan from the land of Ur, and God called him, and he entered into a covenant with him, and he made promises to him, promises that were in some ways temporal, to bless him, but also in shadows and types contain these promises of the new covenant, the covenant of grace, the, the eternal covenant by which anyone who is saved is saved. And so the nation of Israel was chosen in Abraham, but the church is chosen in Christ. You probably know this passage already, but let's turn to the New Testament, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians... This is the antitype, right? So chosen in Abraham, that's a type or a shadow. This is the antitype now or the reality. Verse 3 in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. All who enjoy salvation were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now here's where the type, anti-type distinction and relationship between Israel and the church become especially important. 
Because within the nation of Israel, people who were in the Old Covenant, right, the church already existed. The church didn't just ex exist at Pentecost. The church is the people of God from the garden on. The church is all those people who have had the benefits of Christ's blessed atonement applied to them through faith. And so you have the nation of Israel, this people that is in the Old Covenant, and that nation serves as a type of the church. But some of those people in Israel truly were saved. The church existed within Israel. Sometimes uh, it's called spiritual Israel, right? There's, there's physical Israel and spiritual Israel. Think of Romans 9, 6, where Paul says that. Where Paul says that not all Israel is Israel. He's making a distinction. And so there were people who were saved in Israel, people in the Old Covenant who looked forward to the work of Christ. People who were saved then, again, by the, by the blessed atonement made in the New Covenant, which is the covenant of grace. Jesus himself said that Abraham looked forward to his day. Remember when he was dealing with the Pharisees who didn't believe in him and who didn't trust him? He said that Abraham looked forward to his day. But many, even most in the nation of Israel, perhaps were not saved. Paul makes that point in chapter 10. The Old Covenant had this mixed people in it. People who were saved and then people who weren't. And it's not to say that God was never gracious or that he never operated in kind providence toward them. Of course he did. And he certainly truly did towards those who were in Israel who truly were saved. But this is why we should be ever so grateful that we are not in the Old Covenant church. The Old Covenant was a mixed covenant. The New Covenant is, is the one in which every person who is truly saved is a part of, is not a mixed covenant. The new covenant promises salvation. It guarantees salvation based upon the work of Christ. That's the thrust of the whole letter to the Hebrews. That's the promise in Jeremiah 31. It's why, as a Baptist church, we only baptize believers. And we try to make sure even at that point that there is a credible profession of faith, that the person who is being baptized, that they understand the gospel, and that there's evidence of it in their life. Because the new covenant, properly speaking, is not a mixed group of saved and unsaved people. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. We read that in Hebrews 9, 15. If we were to keep reading in Hebrews 9, verse 15 says, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. He mediates for everyone in the new covenant. You think he's going to fail in that? Can't fail? Christ can't fail. He is victorious. He is God. But the church, which is rightly called the new covenant people of God, will sometimes have people joined to a local church, people who aren't actually part of the new covenant. False professors of faith then. People who eventually fall away it's very sad when they do. It's heartbreaking when they do. I've noticed this actually. Uh, when someone apostatizes, when a person goes from professing belief in Christ to no longer seeing the need of doing so, they tend to do it so casually. Sometimes they even do it like joyfully, like celebratory, in a celebratory way. I think like Josh Harris, who like posted a long Instagram post about how free he was now. But for us, for us who are truly saved and part of the new covenant, we're, we're heartbroken when, when somebody falls away, when someone apostatizes. Because we, as part of the new covenant, we know that that's not what happens in the new covenant. 
Because Christ is mediating for us. Because Christ has risen to the right hand of the Father and he is seated there and he has obtained victory for everybody who was part of the new covenant. And so when someone falls away, it's, just, it's not right to us. And so we hope that it's not a true falling away, that it's just a wandering, a dark providence, as it were. But that's what the point that the Apostle Paul is making here in chapter 10. He's wanting the Corinthian church, he's wanting us to see that sometimes people who aren't actually in the new covenant become members of the church. And with the example of Israel, he's building up to this threat, this warning in verse 12, that does actually speak to new covenant members as well, to true believers as well. So back to 1 Corinthians 10. In chapters 10, 1 through 4, when Paul talks about being baptized into Moses, his point is that participation in external privileges does not guarantee grace. It doesn't guarantee salvation. That was true in the nation of Israel while they were in the Old Covenant. It's true in the context of a local church which should be made up only of New Covenant members. That should be abundantly clear to you as you read those first four verses in chapter 10. Paul talks about being baptized into Moses, and, and there's a word that jumps out to us as we read it. It's the word all. All of the Israelites participated in this. All of them ate the same spiritual food. All of them were baptized into Moses, baptized into the cloud, and baptized into the sea. All drank the same spiritual drink, right? And so all of them participated. But then, of course, there's that stinging note. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. And honestly, that's an understatement. He was not well pleased with all of them except two, right? Only Caleb and Joshua are the only ones who made it into Canaan. So participation in external privileges does not guarantee grace. It does not guarantee salvation. And that's something that just need, it needs to be preached over and over and over and over again in our churches today. Because even though theologically we know that just by mere participation in external privileges we don't get grace, it is at least at the level in which we live, we kind of make those assumptions, don't we? You know, it's, it's, I've got good routines. I do, you know, I do this, I, I do that. I've been baptized. I take the Lord's Supper, all of that. All these external participation things. And Paul's point is simply this. Those external privileges do not guarantee grace. Then in 5 through 11, Paul gives us Old Testament warnings. He sets forth examples from the Old Testament that warned us what we must not be, right? And so this is, this is exemplary preaching. He's preaching examples, but he's doing it in the negative sense. So it's don't do this. It, it, instead, of, instead of this, be this. It's don't be idolaters. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't be grumblers. Don't be. And that's the whole point is, is don't test the Lord. And so in a sense, what Paul is doing is he's pointing these things out, and then he bookends both of these points in 6 and 11, where in essence he says, he tells us the Old Testament has been given to us to instruct us. It's given to us to correct us and to rebuke us. All of that which took place in the Old Covenant that was recorded for us in former times, all of it was written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. That would be the Corinthian church, that would be us just as well. It points us to the discipline that the Father gives to those whom he loves. And so, and so that scripture is given to us to warn us, 
to warn us against certain behaviors because just as Israel foreshadows us, people within the church today are also prone to commit the same kind of sins that Israel did there in, within the Old Covenant community. The judgments upon Israel are an example to us. And the consequences that Israel experienced because of her sins also serve as examples for us. Those judgments that God brought, they serve to be examples. And by the way, this is the very same thing that's done in the letter to the Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, where there the writer, he, he writes to the Hebrews and he uses the wilderness generation as a paradigm for the people of God today. And of course, the letter to Hebrews contains those, those passages that we all find very difficult, those warning passages, like in chapter 2 and 6 and, and 10. And many believers struggle with those passages. How should we understand them? But I don't know that we need to. And, I, and hopefully this text this morning will help us to see that. I hope that it will. So the concluding applications then for this whole section are found in verse 12 and 13. And in verse 12, we have a warning. A warning ultimately against pride and idolatry. And really, those are absolutely related every time. Every time someone is idolatrous, there is an element of pride in them as well. And then in verse 13, we have a promise of God's faithfulness. So a warning or a threat followed by a promise. So now we come to these two verses. And Gordon Fee makes a comment that I never really thought about, but I got to say, I think he is right. He says that out of this whole chapter, out of all of chapter 10, the only thing we remember is verse 13, which is the word of encouragement. I mean, if you think about it, everything else is kind of a blur. And then there's verse 13, which we often hope to memorize. We've got that one down. It's a popular memory verse. But the point is, is that verse 12 and verse 13 go together. They are two sides of the same coin. And we have on one hand a warning, and then on the other hand a promise. And so again, verse 12 and 13 is actually giving us the application of 8, 1 through 10, 11. So when we read these two verses, don't think that this just goes back to the end of chapter 9. This goes back, this is the application of the principal issue at the start of this whole unit, which is chapter 8, verse 1, right? Which, of course, Paul's admonition at that point is, is what? Is that, that love is what edifies. For the Christian, personal behavior is dictated not by knowledge, freedom, or law, but by love for those within the community. And so as a Christian, you, can, you are free to give up your perceived rights so that you won't cause others to fall into idolatry, so that you won't cause others to fall into false worship. And then Paul gives the illustration of himself, how he does that. Pastor Nick preached on that part. And so the whole thing is revolving around making these kind of choices of putting other people first for the sake of love so as to not encourage idolatry, so as to not encourage wrong worship among the body in order to not stumble them. This is his application for all of it. And then as we'll see for next week, he gets right into the issue of idolatry plainly. Uh, verse 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So don't presume your standing. God will help you in times of trial and temptation. God is faithful, but flee idolatry at the same time. So that's the broad and narrow context of the passage. And we need to know those things to rightly make use of the scriptures. But now we can turn our attention to the specifics of the application of verse 12 and 13 for more understanding. Because again, remember what this application is. It's, it's a warning and a promise. So the function of the warnings and promises. I'll bear with me because your natural, your natural, our natural response when you hear warning and pro, when you hear warning and promise may not be to like both of them. 
but the reality is that both warning and promise serve the same function in our lives. They're both ultimately wanting to do the same thing, and that is to help the saints persevere, to help the saints to continue to run that race that they are running, to keep the saints running in such a way that they'll obtain the prize, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. They are the means by which God keeps us going on that narrow path. You know, we don't, we don't get on the narrow path on, through the narrow gate by our, our own merits, right? It's, it's not our own merits that keep us on the narrow path either, the narrow path that leads to life. It's the Lord God who does it, and he often uses warnings and promises towards that end to keep us running to the end of that path, which is our glorification. And you might be thinking, well, that doesn't really make sense because, you know, I love the promises, but I hate the warnings. Uh, the promises are lovely, right? I mean, God is faithful. Praise the Lord. I'll, I'll memorize that. Uh, even if I am faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. That's what he tells, Paul tells Timothy. That's great. That's wonderful. I love that. I'll remember that. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. My sheep hear my voice, and, they, and, and I know them, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those are wonderful promises. We all love those. They keep us encouraged in the face of trials and temptation. They keep us on the narrow path. But maybe we think, I don't really like the warnings so much. Those aren't fun. Those are scary. Take heed, lest you fall. Hebrews 6, 4 says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tested the, tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Well, that's, that's scary. Or, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Well, that's got to mean something different than the plain understanding of, of what it is, right? We don't like that. We don't like those. And there are many of them in Scripture. They're conf confusing in some way. And we know we can't lose our salvation. We know that. And so what many people do is they just dismiss these warnings, dismiss the hundreds of warning passages, and they'll say that they're, only, they're, not, they're not for us, they're not for the true church, they're only for false believers. Well, to think that, to make that mistake is really to remove the teeth out of the warning. But we need teeth, saints. We need teeth in this bite. We are, as Martin Luther said, simuli justus et peccador. It's Latin for saint at the same time as sinner. Righteous at the same time as sinner. Christ's righteousness and our sin. And we can't take the teeth out of these warning passages so that they just gum us to death. We need the bite. It's the means that God uses to persevere us. Threat or warning, it's the same thing. They are warning or threat and then promises are two sides of the same coin of application. And the reason that this is the case is because warning and promise are actually designed to work together in harmony with one another. And the warnings of Scripture, they're not designed to make us doubt our salvation. They are that for the wolf in sheep's clothing, right? They are that for the goat and not the sheep. They are that for the tare and not the wheat that they may repent and come to Christ afresh. But for the true believer, for the person who is in the new covenant, these warnings are, are loving discipline from a heavenly father. For that person, the warnings in scripture are designed to keep us running the race. And they are still real warnings though, because the true believer and the false believer, they actually read the same Bible. 
we hear the same sermons. And let's just think about this, okay? It's either that they are real warnings or they're just hypothetical for us or maybe like just a loss of rewards. That's something some people say. But then what does that do to the authority of them if we say they're just hypothetical and they're not actual real true warnings? How do you preach it? How do you read it in such a way that there's still substance in them if they're just hypothetical, if they're not real warnings? You know, there are probably people here in this room or in the fellowship hall that are here at the church that don't have true professions of faith today, though they've professed faith. And they are living in their sin and embracing their sin behind the scenes and in their heart. They are grumbling about how their life is, just like Israel did. They are not repenting, and instead, they're forming idols in the heart. And, and I stand up here and I say, oh, well, you know, these, these warning passages, they just speak hypothetically. They are real warnings because, you know, once saved, always saved. You know, I've just assuaged their conscience, haven't I, by saying that. I've just given them no warning to repent because, you know, they've walked down an aisle at some point, or they've raised a hand at some point. I've just put them in the position of being like those people who Jesus described at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, who lived their life, and they did good works throughout their life. They were part, they, partake, they partook of the external privileges. They did good works, and they even casted out demons. And then on the last day, when they stand before the Lord, Jesus says to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And let me just say this too. You know, you know me, I'm probably the most or one of the most reformed and Calvinistic people you know. I, have, I of course, affirm the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the doctrinal truth that states that once God saves a person, once a person is saved, they are justified. We cannot be removed from that position of blessing because of who God is. God cannot lie. He who started a work in you will complete it until the day of glorification. There's no such thing as initial justification and then final justification. Don't believe that. You are just as justified as you ever will be the moment you receive Christ in faith as you will be upon that day that you stand before him uh, to receive the promised inheritance that he's going to give to you. But I repudiate the doctrine that sometimes goes by OSAS. Once saved, always saved. That's different than saying that God perseveres us. On the surface, once saved, always saved is true, a person that is truly saved can't lose that salvation because God is holding them fast. But often, those who use that language, once saved, always saved, end up encouraging people who are unrepentant of their sin. People who made a profession of faith at some point in their life. And so the church just ends up then looking like the world. Once you're saved, does it mean then that you could just go on living like the world and you're still saved? You know, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who has Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. It's both. Jesus is Lord and Savior. And so it's better to speak of God persevering us rather than using the language of once saved, always saved. Because it is true that a person can make a profession of faith and then wander, be like a prodigal, as it were, and then come back. And again, that's what we hold out hope for because God is, has been so merciful to us. But if you truly are saved, you will persevere in the faith. And it's not you who perseveres you, it's God who perseveres you. Chapter 18 in the Second London Confession of Faith puts it like this. It says, Although temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God in a state of salvation, with hope of theirs shall perish, 
Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them be ashamed. You see, the warnings in Scripture aren't to make us doubt our salvation. I, I hope that I haven't made anybody doubt their salvation who doesn't need to doubt it this morning. The warnings are not meant for that. That was, again, that was chapter 18 in the Second London Baptist Confession, the first article. Think of it like this, okay? To use the language of, of chapter 9, we are all in a race, and the race is along that narrow path that Jesus places us on. If we're not in a race with each other trying to get there first, it's a personal individual race that we have that ends in salvation. The covenant of redemption places us on it Father, Son, and Spirit have all worked to save us. And at the end of the narrow path, of course, is glorification. It's the celestial city. It's Zion. But as you run, there are ditches on each side. And if you fall off that path, you would end up on the wide path, the path that leads to destruction. And you can't just come right back into the narrow path at the side, right? Because there's only one entrance to the narrow path. It's through the narrow gate. The narrow gate is Christ. And so what God does is he keeps us on that narrow path. And the way that he does it, the way that he keeps us running, is through these true warnings and promises. The promises are true promises. The warnings must also be true threats. They are two sides of the same coin. But again, what if they're just hypothetical warnings? This is what could happen. This is what would happen if you could fall away. In other words, uh, of course, that ends up completely removing the strength of the threats and the warnings. Just say, well, you know, this, this could hypothetically happen if you could, but you can't, so don't worry, about, don't worry about it. Well, the minute that you say don't worry about it, the threat is no longer a threat. A warning is no longer a warning, right? And if the warning is hypothetical, doesn't it then also mean that the promise must also be? These are two sides of the same coin. So don't take the teeth out of the warnings. The warnings exist to keep you running. The warnings are there for a positive purpose, to keep you going. Think of the rip current sign. Why is it there? It's to keep you alive. That's the point and the goal of the warning sign. The goal is to get me there safely. That's what the goal of the scripture is as well too. The warnings, the admonitions, the threats, the discipline from a loving father, they are designed to get us to glorification safely. And so if you believe Christ and you trust Christ and you want to be Christ's sheep, you'll give heed to the warning, all right? If not, well, you don't listen to the warning. You ignore it to your own peril. And the warnings and the promises are like, kind of like guardrails on a kiddie bowling lane. And then that would make us the bowling ball that Jesus has just rolled down that plastic dinosaur. And you're going to stay on that lane because there are these guardrails, right? The warnings and the promises. And you're going to make it to the end because this is what it's God has done. So the warnings and the promises work in harmony with each other. So, how do I know when I need a warning? How do, how do we know when we need a warning? Well, if I'm being proud, if I'm indulging my sin, if I'm being presumptuous, if I'm using grace as a license to sin, which we shouldn't do, right? When I'm not dealing with my sin, I need a warning. How do I know when I need a promise? Well, when I'm feeling despair. 
when I'm having a sense of hopelessness and helplessness, I need God's promises. The promises and the threats work together to keep us on track and running the race. None of us have a right to say, I like the promises, but I don't like the warnings. You can have them. The reality is we need them both. Saint, there are times in your Christian walk, there are times when you are taking up your cross, where you will need one or the other, the warning or the promise. Sometimes you need the sting of a threat and your conscience to be convicted so that you repent. And sometimes you need the sweet balm of a promise and the blessings contained in Christ Jesus. So let's consider the specifics of these verses, beginning with the need of a warning. Verse 12, the verse begins with a, a therefore. But it's stronger than just therefore. It's, it's not your normal therefore. This is a really, really strong conjunction in the Greek. And so you could say, you could even translate, translate it like this. It's for this reason. In other words, what Paul is doing is making us think of all that he has previously said to the Corinthians, and especially the warnings in 10, 1 through 11. He's drawing a clear inference now to them. He's making application. So in light of these warnings, in light of the fact that these external privileges don't guarantee saving grace, and in light of these warnings of certain sins which are not repented that will lead to God's certain judgment, in light of that, for this reason, then he says, let the one who thinks he stands, the one thinking he stands, so Paul has in mind here a person who is right now thinking, I stand. In the Greek, it's the word dokeo, and there's a range of meaning. It can mean to consider, or that it's probable, or to believe, or suppose would also be acceptable. And I would argue that going back to chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, that really Paul is not talking about somebody here who has true knowledge that they stand, but people who have a presumed knowledge that they stand. So they're presuming that they stand. And what does it mean to stand? Well, the idea, of course, has to be to be steadfast, to be strong, secure, that they can be thinking that they stand because they were baptized, or they stand because they took the Lord's Supper, or going back to chapter 8, verse 4 through 6, maybe they think they stand because they have really good theology. You think anybody might conclude that? I've got really good doctrine. Of course I'm going to stand. Uh, that's the danger in Reformed churches, I think. And, and it's true. We, we do have better theology. Without a doubt, that is a fact. Period. End of the story. But your theology is not what makes you stand at the end of the day. Just believing in right and true things is not what actually makes you stand. Although it is absolutely vital for true godliness to be rooted and grounded in the truth, having the truth does not secure true godliness. All, and the proof is in the thousands of years of the church history. How many people have fell away? You know what causes you to truly stand? It's one thing and one thing only. It's the same for me. It's the same for anyone else. Being a pastor doesn't contribute to it. It's Christ. It's all Christ. It's his works. It's all his power. In Christ, the solid rock, I stand. It's a blessing if we have good theology and sound doctrine because then what we can do is we can be of help to others and we can do good works to others, but it's Christ that holds us. He's the reason that we stand. If you're looking to your theology, if you're looking to your baptism, your participation in the Lord's Supper, your little golden ticket that a pastor gave you after he prayed the sinner's prayer with you, you're walking down an aisle, you're raising of a hand, however you boil that down, it's all just self-confidence self-confidence in their own strength. That, by the way, that's not very good theology, but I'll tell you, a person could have really good theology and yet at the level where they live, like not connect those dots and then think at the end of the day, it's their own strength. But again, that's self-confidence. 
It is presumptuous. It's presumptuous standing in the faith that the apostle is warning of here. A presumptuous standing that is self-confident and really, at the end of the day, is just absolute pride. That person needs to take heed lest they fall. Remember, fall here is in the context of 10, 1 through 11. This is a real falling away. It's in the context of apostasy. Not just, you know, a little trip, a bump in the road, but a falling away. Anthony Thistleton in the NIGTC commentary says that in Corinth, the people who thought they stood needed to, to take heed lest they fell was at the root of the Corinthian problem. Many thought they were standing, but in fact, many of them were falling. Now remember, and I, I probably need to qualify this again, I see this as a function of a warning passage. I don't think for a second that a real believer can lose their salvation. But I do think that real believers give heed to the warnings. Real believers hear the warning and they say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. People who aren't real believers don't give heed to the warning passages. And so the real believer reads this passage from it, has their self-confidence shattered, and then remembers the gospel and has all of his or her confidence in Christ Jesus into the God-man. We've been given the mind of Christ, and our only boast is Christ. But the presumptuous man, he looks in the mirror, and then he looks away, forgetting what he looked like. And so what does it mean to take heed in our passage here? It could be translated as to watch carefully, to be vigilant, to be careful. It's not putting confidence in yourself to stand, but it certainly entails what the Apostle Paul said he did back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's being self-disciplined then. He doesn't want to swing and miss and then disqualify himself. It's not being presumptuous then. It's an attitude that carries with it the knowledge of the gospel and then godly living and self-discipline that flows out of the gospel. That flows out of the work of God in your life. So just a few things here. We can mention more ways to take heed, to be vigilant, to be careful, but just a few things in light of a gospel foundation built and resting in Christ. Number one, humility. Humility is needed to take heed. It's essential. Remember, I've been saying that the principal matter here in Corinth and really the main reason that a person is presumptuous when it comes to their standing is pride. It's self-confidence. Pride comes before... A fall, right. That's exactly what's on display here for us. Take heed lest you fall. How can you be humble when we read this warning in Scripture? Well, Pastor Joel Beek writes, Humility and brokenness over sin are fitting responses to the Word because when we hear the Word, we are in the presence of the infinite and holy Creator of heaven and earth. We do not stand in judgment over the Bible. Rather, in the Bible, God stands in judgment over us to bless us or to curse, to save or to condemn. And for the Christian, end the quote, for the Christian, there is no judgment. There is no curse. So we don't have self-confidence. We don't have pride, but we're humble. And in that, we look to Christ. That's one way, the primary way we take heed. By grace given to us, we are humble. Secondly, should be involved, as it were, in the gym that trains up those muscles for the race that Paul mentions at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm speaking of the gym then as a metaphor for the church, of course. Be involved with your church. Don't do things so that you can look at all the things that you've done and then say, oh, I'm good, like, like there's some sort of a checklist. Don't do them for self-confidence. That's to defeat the purpose. That's to make the same mistake that the Corinthian church was doing. Don't treat your church attendance as a mark that you put on a checklist. 
but look at your involvement with the church as what it truly is, the primary place for the distribution of the means of grace in your life, the very grace that Christ gives you that you need to stand. You know, we're kind of a, a unicorn, really, when it comes to modern churches today. And don't get me wrong here. I, I know that we have much that we can do better. We have many rooms to grow and to be discipled, all of us, myself included. There are many ways in which we can grow and which we must grow. But over the past 10 years or so, maybe a little less than that, we have moved away from pragmatism. And it's only by the grace of God. We have moved away from the idea of just doing things because they produce results that we like. We have moved towards biblical fidelity, biblical faithfulness, doing things the way that God wants us to do them. I mean, how many churches out there, Baptist churches, have a useless membership roster? We have pursued meaningful membership. How many Baptist churches out there will simply allow a person to be on the membership roster, even if they, if they even do that, but then have no accountability, or they'll leave all the accountability up to the individual? I tell you, that is what most of them do. And that amounts to a shepherd failing to shepherd the flock. A shepherd, according to Acts 20, is supposed to pay careful attention to himself and to the flock of God, which, he, which the Holy Spirit has obtained and, and given um, to God, and he obtained it by his own blood. Well, if you're just in and out, and that's it, there's no paying careful attention, right? You can't. You're not even known. So be involved at your church, or if you're in a large church, for whatever reason, not that all large churches are bad or anything like that, but it's going to be totally up to you, most likely, to be consistent or not, because most large churches can't keep track of all that. You could neglect the warning in Hebrews 10 that tells you to not neglect the assembling of the saints, and nobody would even notice unless you really made an effort to be involved yourself. Don't go to a church because it has all the programs that you want, because it has the kinds of people that you like to be there at it, the right age or whatever it is. Go to a church that preaches the gospel. Go to a church that rightly divides law and gospel. Go to a church where your soul can be fed, where you will drink living water, where you will eat solid meat. Owen Strahan recently said, life is too short to sit under bad doctrine. And he's right. Go to a church where prayer is important, where it's not just something that you do while you transition to get the band up or something like that. Uh, prayer, Dr. Brian Borgman says, is exhaling dependency upon God. If you think about prayer like that, well, then you can't pray long enough, right? Because you need, you depend upon God. He conforms us to his will through the prayers that he puts upon our hearts. We don't change God through prayer. He changes us when we pray in spirit and truth. And we've made some changes more recently even, but we've talked about some of these things for a long time so as to be a healthier church. We went to one service instead of two, and it hasn't been easy. It's a big change. Of course, it's not easy having all of our little kids in here with us, but it's worth it. They aren't little forever. It's a season, but we're training them up. We're showing them what it means to be the church, to train them up in godliness. We have a Sunday school hour now, and then immediately after that, the morning worship service. So there's two different times in the morning when we could come together and fellowship under the authority of the Word of God. Well, take advantage of that. How do you take heed? Take advantage of those things. Why would you not come to Sunday school to learn or to teach during that time? It's how you're careful. It's how you take heed. And then don't just leave right after church. Stay. Talk to the other saints. Get to know the other people that are here. Uh, 
Now, maybe not today because a lot of people are on vacation, but you know, if usually if you go outside here to the grass, there's a gang of little kids just playing and running around. Talk to the other parents that are here. Get to know these people. Love the other church members. Don't be pres presumptuous thinking you don't need these things. You need them. That's what he's telling to us here. We started an evening service. Why? Most churches are canceling their evening service permanently today. But we started one. Why? Because this is the Lord's day. It's not just the Lord's morning. We are privileged to be able to gather again so that we can pray more and we can learn more from the Word of God together. Take advantage of those things, saints. They're for your good. And this isn't, you know, some legalistic thing. We know there are time, things that come up from time to time. But be at church. It's not part of being presumptuous. It's not putting confidence in yourself, but it's being self-controlled. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Mind you, I can't remember if Pastor Nick mentioned that a few weeks back or not, but be at church when you can. I know, again, I know things will come up from time to time. Can't control that. God is the one who's in control of events, but let church be a good excuse for you to miss everything else. It's a foretaste of heaven, saints. I can't imagine how the person who doesn't love the church, the person who doesn't prefer to be with the church when he or she can, is even thinking what they're, that they're going to like heaven. What do you think heaven is going to be like? Have you thought about that? What do you think heaven is going to be like? It is worship of God and fellowship with the bride of Christ. Church is where temptations are less. Not totally gone, of course. We live in a fallen world and we're still sinners. But it's where we are reminded of the gospel through the preaching of the word and through the sacraments. So we need to take heed. Now, since we're more familiar with the promise than we are the threat, I'm going to spend considerably less time on this part and talk about the promise in general some already. You know, I considered actually just taking verse 12 by itself and then doing 13 next week, but Pastor Nick wanted all these other ones done. I didn't want to mess them up. So here we are. So just a little while longer. Verse 13. While it is right to take the warning of verse 12 serious here, I'm also thankful for the pastoral heart of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian congregation. He follows up this warning with a wonderful promise. I'm just thinking he's been laying into the Corinthians pretty hard since chapter 8, verse 1. And a faithful and loving minister doesn't use the word as a club to beat true believers over the head. He certainly doesn't want to cause doubt among the true people of God. And so one needs to also bring with the warning the encouragement of the gospel. Even in counseling, maybe you have an opportunity to counsel a brother who's in sin. I mean, warn them, but don't just leave them with the warning. Sin doesn't have the final word in our lives. Leave them with the gospel. You know, the law says, take heed so you don't fall. The gospel says, Christ has taken heed so you won't fall. Uh, the Puritan Robert Murray McShane has said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. That's good, right? For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. Martin Luther, it's believed Luther said this, he says, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. When I look at Christ, I don't see how I could be lost. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing for us here in 13. He's having us look to Christ. Because the Corinthian church is not an easy spot. They're in a difficult spot, but here he encourages them. He keeps them. He keeps them on the narrow path by warning them, and then by also now encouraging them, by promising them the truths of the gospel. They are often the means, these trials, these temptations that we go through, they are often the means by which God is sanctifying us and conforming us to Christ and building into us true gospel assurance. 
And there's three aspects of the promise that Paul gives here. And all three aspects are based on one eternal cosmic truth about God. So I thought we'd just look at three parts briefly and then consider the one truth that holds three parts together. The three parts are this. No temptation has overtaken you that except for that which is common to man. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And then thirdly, with the temptation, God provides a way of escape that you may endure it. And then the eternal truth that makes all of that promise be sure and certain that God is faithful. So number one, no temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. I love this. You see how he's comforting them here, I hope. Sometimes we are faced with a trial or a temptation. By the way, the word for temptation here is congruent with the word for trial. It has a, has a double meaning, especially in light of the context. The trial of humbling yourself and forgiving, forgoing your rights. The trials experienced in the wilderness by Israel, the temptation to fall back into pagan worship in chapter 8, the temptation to be idolaters, to grumble, to lust, as Israel did in the opening verses of this chapter. So it's, it's, it's both trial and temptation that is in view here. And he expands beyond the examples that he's already mentioned. And he says, no temptation is overtaking you except for that which is common to man. Sometimes we are going to be, and maybe some of you in this room, I know I've already been faced with this before. I know some of you already have. If you haven't yet, it's certain that you will be. Sometimes we are faced with a trial that feels like it's too much, that nobody else has ever had to deal with it. But that's the enemy telling you lies. The reality is that all temptations, all trials are common to man. They are human temptations. Temptations are common to man. They aren't the kind of temptations that Christ faced in our call to worship passage, right? But how did Christ deal with those even greater temptations? How did he do it? He looked to the word. And that's instructive for us too. We'll get there in just a moment. So these are common to man temptations. These are temptations you and I will face today. We'll face them tomorrow and the next day. And you, no one can ever use the excuse, well, you just don't know what it's like for me in that situation. No. No temptation, no test that has a potenti potentiality to overtake us is not uncommon to man. They are all common to man. God knows our stature. Of course he does. He made us, but even more, Jesus, our high priest, underwent suffering himself. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ is our very present help in trials, friends, in any suffering. And that brings us to our second point. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can control, beyond your ability. The Lord knows his children, doesn't he? He knows us by name. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our temptations, he, and, he, and he permits temptation in our life not to destroy us. So he puts a limit on the temptation. And the limit is, is, isn't existing because of how great we are. Don't read it like that. The limit is a grace of the Lord who knows how dependent upon him that we are. When Paul says that God won't give you beyond what you are able, he means not beyond what you are able to with his help. We know that because of a couple of other things he says. For example, in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, or 9, 8, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's with his help. In Philippians 4, it is in Christ that you can do all things right. You can know how to abound, how to suffer, how to be content, and how to be in need. But it's in Christ. It's not in your own powers. In other words, every temptation, in every test, in every temptation, the question is, will I do what I ought to? Paul says, there will be grace. He does not merely say, I'm dependent upon you to use your own strength. 
without depending upon grace. He says, rather, I am giving to you grace so that you may endure this trial, but you're not independent of, of my powers, God's powers, to be able to do it. And then thirdly, with the temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape so you may be able to endure it. And here is where the word of God is your great help, just like it was with Jesus in the wilderness. Now, I don't know if you notice this, but it's very subtle and it's very important at the same time, but it's the little word also. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. The way of escape comes from God. Well, the temptation then also comes from God. Now, we may not like that at first, and certainly it's not a temptation from God himself. He doesn't tempt anyone, James 1, but he's sovereign over it is what that means. He uses it as a, as a means to accomplish his desired ends. And it's either our own desires which lead us astray, James 1, or it's like in the case of Job, the enemy who comes against us. And if you remember Job 1 and 2, there in the courtroom of heaven, who sets up the trial and mentions Job? Is it Yahweh or Satan? Satan, right? It's the devil. Or it's not the devil, it's God. Excuse me, it's, it's God who does it. But God's not the one who does it, Satan is the one who does it. Now listen, this actually turns out to be good news for us because how can we be certain that we won't be tempted beyond our ability? How can we be sure that God is true here? Well, it's because the temptation has God as the first cause. Secondary causes or other means are fallen nature and our desires, perhaps a demon. But just think, if God had nothing to do with it, how would you know it's not beyond your ability? But God does have something to do with it. And so when God says it's not going to be beyond your ability, rest assured, saint, that is true. And so for the Christian, every temptation or trial comes with a way of escape so we may endure it. Maybe if you've been a Christian for a long time, you can think of times and ways in which the escape, you've seen it and you've taken it. Maybe a distraction at the right time. Maybe a call from a friend at the right time. I don't know. Or the ability to endure a trial or the weight of sin without giving into it. Some of us in the church, have had, again, have had to deal with massive trials. But God is faithful through that. Or think of the saints in Canada, the ones being faithful to God. Think of what they're having to bear under. It's difficult, right? But the promise here is that we're not alone in it. God gives his saints grace that they, by grace, may not collapse under the weight of it. So I'm going to read from Romans 5. You could turn there if you'd like. I know the little ones are winding down, so I'm sorry to you mamas and daddies especially. Verse 1 through 5. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's the gospel. It's just, we have peace with God through justification because of what Christ has done. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. See there, how do you stand? Not with self-confidence, but in grace. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, nobody likes a trial or temptation when it comes. Nobody likes it in the time of it. Nobody's signing up for trial and temptation. I have like five sign-up sheets on the table out there. If I put a sign-up sheet out there for temptations and trials, nobody would rightly sign up for that. But the promise of God is that as we suffer through it, the very things we aren't fond of are the means that God is using to produce endurance in us. He helps us by grace to endure, as he says in verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 10, and as he says again in Romans 5. And the effect of that, what does it do? It produces character. The kind of character that isn't presumptuous. 
The kind of character that isn't self-confident and, and, and assuming that he or she stands. But true, godly character. The kind of character that isn't prideful. And that sort of character produces what? Hope. Hope not in ourselves, but hope in God. Because that is a hope that does not put us to shame. It's a true and real hope rooted in the love of God that has been poured out in our hearts. Temptation and trial don't have the last word in our lives. This would lead John Calvin to say in his commentary in James 1, the conquerors of all temptation are those who love God. Because, of course, those who love God are those who have been loved by God. This is a wonderful promise from God. And how can we know that all these promises of God are true, which we proclaim, that, that we won't fall away? This will take heed, that we'll take heed of both the warning and the promise. It's because God is faithful. It's out of the riches of the abundance of His grace. This is foundational to God, who God is. And I'll just read one verse here for the sake of time. But you have to understand that the reality that God is faithful is a theme from Genesis to Revelation. It is talked about abundantly. And I'm just going to take it for granted this morning that, we assume, that I assume that we are all sure of the fact that God is faithful. We've been talking about it so much already. But Exodus 34, 6 the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Why did the, the nation of Israel just not perish for all their wickedness in, the, in, in Canaan? Because God was faithful to his covenant promises, and he is going to be faithful to all of us in Christ as well too. Great is his faithfulness. The reality that God is faithful is the reason why we can hold on to the promises. The reality that God is faithful is the reason why we can expect Him to give us a warning when we need it. God is faithful. I hope you believe that, church. I hope so because think of what it means in light of the warnings and the promises. It's two things. It means that if we don't heed the warnings, then it evidences that we don't hear Jesus' voice and we aren't His sheep. And if we do hear His voice in the text, then the promises of God to not let it be something that causes us to fall is, is even more firm than the entire fabric of heaven and earth because God is faithful. It's God's faithfulness to us, and it only comes to us in the person of Christ through the grace offered to us in his gospel so that our faithful God will give us grace to take heed and remember the gospel. We don't have to take heed and have confidence in ourselves. We take heed and remember the gospel, leaving all our hope in him whose love doesn't put us to shame because God's love was poured out to us, into our hearts, through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we spent a long time in your word together, but we pray, Lord, that you would let it be profitable to us. As we know, your word is filled with warnings and promises. And we pray that you would cause us to take heed where we need to, Lord, when we are sinning. We pray that your word would convict us and turn us from it so that we may instead choose to do what is pleasing to you, that your law would be a guide to us as what is pleasing and good and right. And we pray, Lord, for ourselves and for others who are in despair, for those who are truly your sheep, who are doubting, who are going through difficult, difficult trial. And we pray that your word of promise, the, the reality that you are faithful, will be a great source of encouragement, that it would restore unto us all the joy of our salvation. We need you, God. And we are glad that you take such good and perfect care of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.